morning. Turn to uh, John chapter 18. In John 18, we're going to start in verse 33. It says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called it Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And that's really what I want to focus on again. Um, Last week I talked about uh, the tragic shooting at the Texas church where 26 were murdered and 20 others were wounded. And I'd like to make some further comments today um, as we talk about hope in the midst of suffering and tragedy. And really the key verse that I will come back to is where Jesus says in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Um, The Texas attack against Christians was one of the first large-scale attacks uh, on American soil, maybe the largest ever regarding fatalities on U.S. soil where Christians were targeted. Um, I want to use it to make a couple points today um, regarding us and what our response is and how it should uh, affect us. So look at Luke 13 with me. In verse 1 it says, There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So tragedy twice hits uh, in Judea, and the people want to know about it and want to question Jesus, this wise rabbi and teacher, about the situation. Uh, Jesus quickly answers their question each time. He says, no, I tell you. But then he goes on to bring the focus onto them. Not onto the, to the event and the abstract, not onto the event removed, but really to bring it back to them. And his response is made in such a way for them to do like an introspection, to look inward, to do a self-inquiry. And really, what's his point? Hey, you're going to perish too. They've already perished, but at some point, you're going to perish And that being the case, what are you going to do? What is your response? So Jesus wasn't saying don't don't help or get involved in tragedy. Uh, What he was saying was in doing those things, don't ignore the implications of the event for yourself. And what I've seen uh, many times happen is uh, tragedy hits and, and people, they run from God. They're supposed to run to God. They they run from God. Um, That's the wrong direction. And Jesus wants us to realize here we need to repent. We need to realize that each one of us can be called to account 
at any moment. Those people two weeks ago sitting in their church did not realize that that was the day that they'd be called to account, but they were. So it should be a very uh, sobering thing for us when we hear tragedies because it should be a wake-up call for us. Um, Look at James chapter 4. So when tragedy hits, first it's, it's really a call for us to make sure we're right with the Lord. Even if we're believers, I mean, we're right positionally, but practically are we at where we need to be with the Lord. Second, it needs to be a wake-up call. In James uh, chapter 4, he says this in verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. None of us. And none of us are guaranteed a pleasant death. I was reading a little booklet um, on cancer last week, and it said 39% of Americans will get cancer at some point in their life. That's a pretty sobering statistic. 39%. Um, It's awful. And death is usually anything but pleasant. Few of us will die in our sleep. Few of us will peacefully fade away. And that's death. Um, I'm talking about living, though. And that's really Jesus' point, okay? Those people had their time, and it's gone for them. You have your time. It's right now. What are you doing with what you have right here, right now? How are you taking advantage of the moment? How are you seizing the opportunities? So it should be a wake-up call for us that life is but a vapor. It is a mist. Everyone that's gone before us, back to the time of Jesus, back to the time of Moses, back to the time of Adam, they're gone. Yet here we are. And this is our place, and here we stand in history. And what are we going to do? What is our role? So it should wake us up to get serious about whatever God might have called us to do. Three, we should not be surprised that Christians are targeted for their faith. Targeted even to the point of death. Listen, atrocities against believers have occurred for thousands of years. Thousands of years. It didn't start two weeks ago. It didn't start on 9-11. Uh, thousands of years, terrorists have done horrible and tragic things. You know, the Roman Empire, for the first hundred, few hundred years after Christ's death, they hated Christians and thought of some of the most cruel and extreme uh, ways possible to punish them for their faith. Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you've ever read it or heard of it, I mean, it chronicles the fate, starting after the resurrection of Jesus, of many, many, many believers in the cruel and um, horrible ways that they met their fate. Okay? Story after story. But here's the thing. This still happens today across the world. Um, if you want to cry, if you want to be righteously angry, angry, if you want to empathize with other believers, then subscribe and read to Fox's Book of Martyrs. Excuse me, not Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, Subscribe me to the Voice of the Martyrs. Um, it's a magazine. 
It's a, it's a ministry, but it's also a magazine that they publish, and it goes through detail after detail of modern-day martyrs, people that are being persecuted for their faith and dying for their faith right now, today. And, and it, is, it is tragic and it is sad. In North Korea alone, you know what they do to believers there? They, like, they, they literally take steamrollers and will roll over unbelievers with a steamroller. Others, they will use to test biological weapons on. They will subject them to it, whether it's a gas or an injection or something like that. These are our, our brothers and sisters in Christ for their faith. No crime committed. And others, there's been reports that they have just slowly um, cooked over a fire. That's our brothers and sisters. With the kids, they try to trick them into telling on their parents. There's a story, a true story, of a girl. Her name was Yoon, and, they, and they, in her class, the public um, class at school, her whole class was encouraged to go home and look for uh, a special book in your house. Look for the most special book that your parents might have. So Yoon went home and, um, and found a special book. And what was that special book that she brought back to class the next day? A Bible. And the day after, when she came back to class, she received this big reward. And all her classmates clapped. And when Yoon went home that day, her parents were gone. And she never saw them again. Um, this is the stark reality that has been occurring since most of the disciples gave up their lives, most of the twelve died in awful ways. But I want you to see this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 12, the Holy Spirit says through Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised, verse 12. Do not be surprised. Listen, North Korean Christians know this. Egyptian Christians know this. Iraqi Christians know this. Iranian Christians know this. Americans, by and far, do not know this. They don't know it. But these words are not any less true today. Look at Hebrews 11. We get all these verses that start off with, by faith, and we hear about the actions of God's saints who, by faith, did whatever he asked them to do. And then the author starts to conclude the section in verse 32. He says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who conquered faith, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight, flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. See, I mean, there's all these powerful things that God is doing. He's using his saints, right? Amazing things. But then it goes on. Verse 35, some were tortured, 
refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though committed through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. But I want you to see the contrast there where, at times, God intervenes mightily and does amazing things. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Elijah on Mount Carmel. Over and over, he will intercede. And at other times, he chooses not to. So we get, in the beginning of that section, all these mighty things, and at the end, the persecution that they faced, the death that occurred. Why is that? You want the deeply theological answer? We don't know. We don't know. I want you to look at Acts chapter 4. Actually, let's go to Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, verse 1, it says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So notice here, you can skip over this real quick when you're reading through the book of Acts. God spares one apostle, Peter, right? But he doesn't spare another apostle, James. So we can imagine the Pharisees mocking the believers back then, right? I mean, one of the twelve. One of the twelve was killed. Why didn't God protect him? Why didn't God intervene? He intervened with Peter. Why not with James? We don't know. We can, we can speculate. We can guess. We can theorize. But we just don't know. God has his purposes. God has his plans. At times, he will intervene mightily. At times, he chooses not to. That's where trust and faith comes in. And here, the, the, the apostles, what was their response? I mean, did they fall away? No. If anything, they had a greater, a greater resolute, a greater resolution. Um, why? Why? Because they believed what they believed was the truth. That's why. They believed it was the truth. And a truth like that is worth dying for. As C.S. Lewis says, you know, if, if, if the resurrection um, is a hoax, if it's not true, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then, then Christianity really, just, we should just push it aside. It really makes no difference whatsoever. Um, but if the resurrection really did happen, then it affects everything in life and is the most important thing that we can possibly consider and take action on. That's what the apostles realized. And they were convinced. Why? Because they were the eyewitnesses of it. They saw it. They saw Jesus hanging on the cross. They saw him three days later raised from the dead. They were convinced. Many people 
are willing to die for what they believe to be a truth. But they knew it to be a truth. No one will die for a lie. That'd be silly. They believed it to be the truth. And here we have it confirmed over and over again. 500 witnesses later on, the scriptures say, over and over, a testimony to who Jesus was. I understand trusting the Lord when there aren't easy answers um, is, is challenging. It, it shows a great sign of humility, in my opinion, and a, and a great amount of faith. Um, for us, I think it's a lot easier for us to read about something horrific when it happened 2,000 years ago. We just get one verse on, uh, on James, and we get hours and hours and hours of news about a shooting two weeks ago. Articles are written, all sorts of points of view. So it's, it's, it's almost like the more distant something is removed, the easier it is to, uh, for us to kind of handle. But when we find out about an event minutes or hours after it happens, it seems to hit us a little bit harder, regardless of how close we are to the event or not. Look at Acts chapter 4. Let's start in verse 23. This is after the, some of the apostles are released. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said... So this is, this is a prayer, a corporate prayer that they're praying. I want you to take note of that. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I mean, who's against Jesus here? Basically everyone. And he's referencing, he's referencing the psalm there. Uh, in the psalm, look back in verse 25, the Gentiles are mentioned, peoples are mentioned, kings are mentioned, rulers are mentioned. And then, who's listed next? Herod, Pontius Pilate, kings and rulers, then the Gentiles, and here, the peoples of Israel. So it's like everyone. But here's the thing. Notice who's in control. God. Verse, 20, verse <clears throat> 28 to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Man has his own plan, man has his own ways, and God has his plan, which he's going to make sure is accomplished. He is sovereign, and he's going to make sure whatever he wants is done. So this is a prayer that they're speaking to God. And look upon uh, what they say in verse 29. Uh, here they are. Lord, look upon their threats. And what's the request? Give us boldness. Give us boldness. Lord, don't let us recoil. Don't let us run. Don't let us cower. Don't let us be fearful. Let us charge ahead. Let us keep going. Let us move forward. Let us push on. Why? 
it goes, it goes back to that first verse we read. Because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And here's the thing. His kingdom is unlike any other kingdom. In this kingdom, everything is turned upside down. And in the other kingdom, the servants fight for their king and protect him at all costs. That's what the disciples were ready to do in the garden, right? They were, they were ready. That's what earthly kingdoms do. In his kingdom, the king lays down his life for his servants. In any other kingdom, compromise, shortcuts, climbing over others is how you get to the top. In his kingdom, the way to the top is to go down. And we get glimpses of what his kingdom coming will look like all throughout the scriptures. In the New Testament, we see it clearly with the incarnation, right? God literally in the flesh. God arrives. Then we get a glimpse with the transfiguration. Right? And Peter, Peter's like, I mean, he's like, he doesn't even know what's up. I mean, he's freaking out. You know, should we start building places for Elijah and Moses? I mean, the kingdom is coming, and Peter's trying to understand that. The resurrection, heaven is touching earth. On and on we see these things. And, and here's the thing for us. Um, we have a longing. God says he's placed eternity in our hearts. He's placed eternity in our hearts, and we have a longing for heaven on earth. That's what we want to see. And that longing is put there by God himself. We long for something better. We long for something pure. We long for something more righteous. And the challenge is we're often puzzled and confused when when God doesn't make his kingdom right here on earth, right now, in every situation. And we're left, left scratching our heads. Well, because the kingdom is coming. It is not here yet. The second to last verse in Revelation, Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. You want to know what John's response is? He says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. John was ready, and we should be ready. So what should our response be, corporately and individually, when tragedy and suffering strike? Well, here's the thing. When tragedy strikes, Christians respond. Uh, This means two things. One, it's a statement. This is what Christians do. Christians respond. Further, we respond um, not just individually, but, but corporately. Christians, it's a command. Christians, comma, respond. Do something. Get involved. Christians They understand that God is near to the brokenhearted. And so they often rush to the tragedy. They don't sit on the sidelines, simply satisfied to talk about the situation, simply doing Monday Monday morning quarterbacking of what should have, could have, would have happened. And this has been the response of the church. Rush to the tragedy. Rush to the suffering. All the way back, early believers... Infants would be 
abandoned at the walls of the city, usually girls, what would the Christians do? They would rescue those kids. They'd adopt them as their own. When the bubonic plague in Europe hit, most fled the cities. What did the Christians do? Ran to the cities. Even if something as recent as the Ebola crisis a few years ago in West Africa, um, the first responders was not the U.S. government. It was Christian organizations. They responded. The list could go on and on. One uh, modern historian noted, when epidemics broke out, the Romans often fled in fear and left the sick to die without care. The response of the believers was to, to rush in. Even in the Crusades, the Christians were there actually to take care of both the Christians and the Muslims with their injuries. It's how hospitals uh, were started in some of those areas, to take care of the suffering on both sides. You won't see that in many textbooks. Suffering in Christianity. Uh, look back in John 19. This is Jesus talking again with Pilate. In verse 9 he says, He entered his quarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. That's, that little, those two little verses are probably two of my favorite verses in the scriptures because it gives us a clear picture of who's in charge. God was still in charge. God knew what he was doing. Here Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. He had all the power and force of Rome backing him, and Pilate thought he was in control. He's insulted that Jesus won't even answer him. He thought he was the one with power. But one greater than Pilate was in control. And here, the cross was meant to intimidate people. It was meant to be a reminder to people that Rome does not mess around. That disobedience to Rome is painful and lethal. And what did God do with that symbol? Now, now a symbol that, that believers wear around their neck. It's a term that Paul uses over and over again. The cross, the cross, the cross. So what was meant to be intimidating and lethal and meant death and suffering, God has used as a symbol for life, for hope. So as believers, we need to remember... <clears throat> God is in control. He is in charge. He is on the throne. And I think sometimes what we want God to say to us is, oh, nothing bad is going to happen. You'll be fine. No harm will ever come to you or anyone you love. No evil is going to touch you. Uh, the word shows, and our experience confirms, that's not the way it is. See, God's not a genie that's going to give you everything you want. God is not a God 
that makes this life perfect. He's not a God that ensures no evil thing ever happens to us. Why? This world is fallen and broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It is corrupt, it's in decay, and it is not functioning the way it was designed. And neither are we. But God is a God that will one day give you more than you could ever want. He is a God that will one day make life more than perfect, a perfect world, a perfect heaven, a perfect people, all in the presence of a perfect God. And he is a God that will one day take all the evil and deal with it fully and completely. So when tragedy hits, you know, people ask, where was God? Where was God? Well, where was he? He was right there at, at the beginning of time, creating a perfect world for a perfect couple to inhabit so that this perfect creation would know the excellence and the beauty of communing with God himself. Where was he? He was right there solving the problem of sin and evil as he sent his own son to die on a cross for us. Where was God? He was right there pouring out his wrath on his son instead of us. Instead of us. So that any person who trusts in Jesus would escape that wrath. Where was God? He was preparing to receive into the heavenly dwellings those that were about to enter it. Now those answers might mean little to atheists. Atheists can complain about all the injustices and evils of the world. Of course, they fail to realize that without an objective morality, there really is no such thing as injustice or evil. That's beside the point. Hindus can convince themselves there really is no suffering. Buddhists can convince themselves that suffering can be overcome if you can just stick to the Eightfold Path. And I would admit those answers that I just gave aren't much comfort at the time to those who have experienced tragedy or have had loved ones experience tragedy. Um, We need to be careful in those situations, I believe, to not give trite answers or trite sayings. And maybe you've heard some of them. You know, they're in a better place. It was meant to be. It was their time. That might be all fine and dandy when it's an 85-year-old grandpa passing away in his sleep. Um, but not really okay when life is snuffed out at an early age or suddenly when something awful or tragic happens. And if the best you got to say um, is something that even Hallmark wouldn't put on their cards, then you probably shouldn't say it. Um, I'm sorry, followed by silence, is fine. And often in these situations, um, we can do more damage than good by trying to say more than just, I'm sorry. Um, the things people have told me as they've gone through tragic heartbreak and suffering that others have said to them um, is just downright insensitive. So we need to be there, we need to be caring, we need to be loving, we need to be present and listen. You've heard the saying, um, we're not promised tomorrow. But I would disagree. Because as believers, 
we're actually promised tomorrow. Right? Um, we're not promised it here on this earth, but we are promised tomorrow. And we're promised a million tomorrows, and a billion tomorrows, and a trillion tomorrows, and an infinity of tomorrows. Um, I think that's important. Because for the Christian, there really is always a tomorrow. Look at Romans 8 as I wrap up here. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now this isn't uh, Paul as a theologian just waxing eloquent or sounding sophisticated or, or whatever. This is someone who speaks from experience. You know, he's got the list in Corinthians that talks about all the things that he's experienced, right? Forty lashes minus one. How many times? <laughs> this is your Bible quiz. Come on, guys. Good. Five. Shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead. On and on and on, right? So when he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, he can kind of speak to the moment. Okay? He's got a little bit of, of credence. So I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and I've had a whole lot of them, is what he's implying, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul had the proper perspective, and he's setting the proper perspective for us. You know, there's that, that other verse in, in Corinthians that, you know, the, the weight that we feel with our sufferings and affliction compared to glory is it's a light, momentary affliction. It says compared to the weight of glory. You know, so if there was, there was a scale of, of afflictions and, and what we experience and, and glory, you know, I mean, just glory bottoms out the scale. Big time, okay? Light, momentary affliction compared to the glory that is coming. Listen, if, all, if, if this was all there is, it'd be pretty discouraging. There's injustice, there's evil, there's corruption, there's sin, there's evil. But here's the thing. There is more. And what is to come far, far, far exceeds what we currently have. And Jesus is going to usher in a new kingdom far better than what we see, far better than what we can even imagine. And he's coming back, and he's going to claim his own for himself. The question I have for you is, are you one of his? Are you one of his? Because he's coming back. And he's bringing judgment with him. Why? Because of all the injustice and evil that we see. If, he wants, if we want it to be made right, and that is a yearning inside of us, then guess what? Judgment has to come. But he provides a way, a way of escape, if you will, through his own sacrifice. So if you're here, you have sin after sin after sin upon you, just like me, just like everybody else here. But Jesus just didn't die on that cross because it was the nice thing to do. He did it because he wanted you to have an opportunity 
to have your sins forgiven. He bore your sins on himself. And then he offers you his righteousness. He offers it to you. What do you have to do? There's no hoops that you have to jump through. You have to trust. You have to trust. You have to trust Jesus. You have to come before him. It is humbling to admit you can't do something on your own. And we all want to do something on our own. We want, all want to try to earn our, our, our keep. We all want to try to earn our way. We have to humble ourselves and admit we can't do it. That keeps a lot of people from Jesus because you have to come humbly and trust in him that what he did was for you and that you believe it. His resurrection shows that he has power over the grave. It was like the seal, so to speak. It's a guarantee that you can be forgiven, that you can have eternal life with him. But you have to trust. You have to trust. You have to come to him humbly and trust in him. So I encourage you today, if you have not done that, put your faith in Jesus. Trust in the work that he has done. Trust that he did that for you. For you, for you, for you, for you. Trust him that it was for you. He says in, uh, in John chapter 1, to those who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. And then John says later in 1 John chapter 3, he talks about what great a privilege it is that we can be called children of God. So I encourage you today to trust in Jesus, to become one of his children. Humble yourself and come to him. Ask him for forgiveness of your sins. He will grant it if you come with a humble heart and ask in faith. Remember, John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God unlike any other. We thank you that you are holy other, that you are awesome in power, that you are gracious, that you are good, that you are loving, that you are compassionate, that you are merciful, that you pour out your grace, Lord, on those that truly seek you. And Father, I ask right now, whoever is here that doesn't know you, Lord, that you'd make that apparent to them. That you'd weigh their sin upon their hearts, knowing that they need to take care of it, but also knowing they can't. And then press upon them, God, that you provided a way through your Son. If there's anyone here who wants to put their faith in Jesus today for the first time, would, would you raise your hand? I'd like to see your hand so I can pray for you. Anybody here? Thank you. Anybody else? All right. Uh, for the person who raised their hand, I want you to speak to the Lord yourself right now. I'm going to give you a moment. Ask the Lord in your own heart. You can speak to yourself
to God to forgive you, that you trust in him, that you want to be forgiven. Father, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for this person who wants to trust in you, who is putting their faith in you, Lord. And your word says that the angels rejoice over one person who trusts in you and repents. So we rejoice with them, God. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for myself that you would bring us to a place of greater trust in you. Help us, Lord, to trust. Help us to be the ones that are your servants, willing to run to the tragedy and the suffering, willing to be with those that are hurting. We thank you that you provide a way through your Son, that all is not lost, that there is hope for tomorrow, and that as believers, as your children, we can have hope in the midst of suffering. We love you, Lord. Amen.